Amen. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate you guys. Hello to everybody out there. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and so good to be with you today. I know we're not together in the same room, but it's so good to be here, and that technology allows us. I, I was looking at the Zoom screen right before I came up. Uh, Dylan, hey, I saw you on there, you and your mom. Uh, Bruce and Tony, you guys are so faithful to show up and facilitate the Zoom conversation. So we're so grateful for all of you, whether you're joining on Zoom or whether you're on YouTube. Uh, Grateful that you're here with us as we're continuing this Advent journey uh, together today. Uh, We're in the season of Advent, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Uh, And Advent simply, it comes from the Latin, simply means arrival or coming. And uh, although Advent often gets confused as a season of time looking forward to and leading up to Christmas, the reality is a little different. Um, When we look back at the roots and the tradition of Advent, what we see is it's not about looking back to remember Jesus's first coming at Christmas, but it's about looking forward in anticipation of his return to usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And this is the heart of the Christian hope. This is the, this, this hope that we have that we talk about at Advent of Jesus's return, the return that will bring the fullness of the kingdom of God. That's the heart of the Christian hope, um, that all the brokenness in our lives and all the brokenness in the world would be set right. This is a promise that gives us hope. It's it's a promise that that leads us to have peace in the midst of difficult circumstances. And as this week's theme uh, of Advent is uh, is joy, it's one that can give us joy, uh, a fullness of joy that, that is to come in the future, but it gives us joy today. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what the fullness of that kingdom looks like, what the Bible gives us in terms of glimpses about the consummation of God's kingdom and what that'll be like. But today, um, I actually, I have to talk about something that I I honestly, I don't want to talk about. Um, If I'm just perfectly honest, I don't want to talk about this today, this subject. I, I kind of wrestled with God all week about it. I would rather have figured out some really light, fluffy sermon on joy to talk about, which is the theme, theme of, of this week. But as I kept going through the readings and as I kept going through the scriptures and thinking about the themes of Advent, what I realized is that there was a subject that we have to talk about. If we're going to talk about Jesus's coming in the future, we have to talk about God's judgment. Now, I know uh, if you were here with me, I could have heard you audibly groan and seen you shift in your seats, but I'm just imagining you doing that on your couch at home because I know that you're thinking, why on earth in the middle of the Christmas season are we going to talk about God's judgment? This is a time to talk about God's forgiveness and Jesus coming to forgive us of our sins. And that's true, but here's the thing. There is no way to really talk about Advent and to talk about the true spirit of Advent looking forward to Christ's return, his future return, without talking about the topic of judgment. Now, before you turn off your TV or close your computer and just walk away, I think I can pretty easily convince you that you actually care a lot about judgment. We all care a lot about judgment, especially as judgment is related, as Brian was just talking about, to the the subject of justice. Those two things are integrally linked. And and when I talk about judgment, we need to first define what we're talking about. Because I think the word judgment has become corroded and corrupted and has become kind of a negative thing when, when historically that's not what it is at all. When I talk about judgment, I'm talking about its classic 
historical definition, which is this. Judgment is the act of discerning truth or value as an exercise of wisdom. So truth is about discerning between different things. And this is something that human beings have always valued and sought and tried to do. Discerning between what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. Struggling and wrestling to know. And the exercise of judgment, those who could do it and do it well and do it wisely were esteemed and honored. I think some of our negative perception about judgment actually is relatively new. I think sometimes we associate the word judgment with the adjective judgmental, which interestingly is actually a a relatively new word in our vocabulary. Judgmental doesn't show up in the Oxford English Dictionary until the 20th century. And it enters at a time where a new way of thinking was also entering into our world, into our society. And it's the, this, the topic of, of relativism. Um, as relativism enters the world, this concept of judgmentalism begins to enter because relativism is the belief that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context and are not absolute. They're not fixed. They're relative. That's the, the term. If, if I were to sum up relativism in one short phrase, it's, hey, you do you. You do you. I'm going to do me. You, you do you. I'm going to do me. Like your truth, bro, your truth is your truth. My truth, my truth. And so when we have this sense, which has become just commonplace today to, to, to most people, to, to think that truth is not something that's absolute, that's fixed, as the Bible would have us believe that it's fixed and connected to God who defines what's good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. You know, in our world today, we're told that we should respect the truth of other people and affirm it, even if we disagree with it. And to disagree or to call out differences or even contradictions in different truths is judgmental. That's why it's become such a negative term. And yet, this is why I think our country is so fractured and and so so divided around different issues of our day because everyone has their own version of truth. And and they're simply finding other people, other groups, other tribes who believe the same things that they do. We don't have any way of looking out at the world and making good judgment about what is good or bad, right or wrong, true are false. And this is, I think, at least partly why we're falling so woefully short in facing the challenging issues of justice that our world faces today. Things like discrimination and racism, sexism, economic equality, environmental impact, all of those things on and on and on. It's not that we don't care about them. It's not that we're not interested and don't care about these issues. We do, but we fundamentally disagree in our judgment about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and bad, and how to proceed forward. And justice requires right judgment. Justice requires right judgment. Which is why judgment is a foundational part of Advent. And it's a a fundamental part of Advent because God's judgment, cleaving between what's good and bad, right and wrong, is a part of what Jesus' return in the future is all about. And Jesus told us that. 
from the beginning to show you what I'm talking about and how this theme is woven throughout Jesus's teaching. I want to jump into a verse of scripture actually connected to the one that we read uh, during uh, our, our candle lighting this morning. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with, with us, we're going to start today in the book of Luke. Luke is one of the four accounts of Jesus's life. And he tells us this story starting in chapter four, verse 16, uh, about a, a significant event early in Jesus's li- ministry life, when, when he's just sort of going public. Um, and it's a, it's a story that takes place in his hometown. Picking up in verse 16 of chapter four of Luke, we read this. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, this is the moment that Jesus chooses to go public, to let everyone know that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the one who is proclaiming the coming kingdom of the Lord. Look what he says. He says, I'm here to proclaim good news for the poor. First, he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me and he has anointed me Anoint, the anointed one was the Messiah. As the Isaiah text is a messianic text. It's part of why we read it over and over at Advent because it's, it was written 700 years before Jesus lived, but it was prophesying or predicting that there would be a king who would come, an anointed one who would lead Israel back to greatness. Look what this kingdom is going to be like. Jesus says it's good news for the poor. Freedom for prisoners or the word here might also be used as captives, those who are, who are caught or captive. This could, be, mean, this could mean literal prisoners, but it could also be those who are held captive by debt or by social structures that keep them oppressed or keep them from having rights or freedoms. And then the next thing he says is he, he's come to announce recovery of sight for the blind. He's talking about the reversal of physical defects or limitations that strike so many people in our world. And then finally, he says he's come to set the oppressed free. Those who suffer under social, racial, sexual, or other kinds of oppression, he said he's come to proclaim their freedom. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, which if you've been around and if you were paying attention through Leviticus, that may have sort of tweaked something in your mind and reminded you of something. Because we talked about this during Leviticus. The, this is a reference, the year of the Lord's favor is a reference back to the year of Jubilee. Remember we talked about this. God told the Israelites that every 50th year, they were to have a year where prisoners, which really meant debt prisoners, people who had accumulated debt and were having to work as indentured servants or had to sell their family's land to be able to eat and to live, 
All of those debts were canceled. People were set free. It was the year of the Lord's favor. And that was to be a part of Israel's regular life. Every 50 years that was supposed to happen. Though histor- history, historians tell us that it's, there's not much evidence that they actually really practice it. And so he refers to this coming time where, where there will be joy and gladness because the kingdom of God will come and all of these things are going to come to pass. And then he drops this bombshell. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's claiming to be the one who's bringing this kingdom to reality. It's an enormously important moment in Jesus's ministry where he states unequivocally for those listening that he is the promised Messiah. And yet as important as what he says in this announcement and what Luke records is also equally important is what he doesn't say. You see, when you go back and you read Isaiah 61, it's interesting to hear and see where Jesus, is, what Jesus chooses to quote and where he chooses to stop in this verse. So we're going to go back, we're going to look at the text of Isaiah 61. And, and this has been translated and, and retranslated. And so you get some words that are a little bit different, but our translation of Isaiah 61 says this. It sounds very familiar to exactly what Jesus said that day on, in the synagogue. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is where Jesus stops because his first advent was coming to proclaim those things, coming to proclaim the coming kingdom of God that would usher in good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, that the oppressed would be set free. But look at the, the next line from the original text. And the day of vengeance of our God. The coming of God's kingdom, all the good things that Jesus promised that he would be ushering in, announce, that, that he was announcing that day in the synagogue, comes after God's judgment, which makes sense if you think about it. If the kingdom of God is this place where there's, there's good news for the poor and the oppressed are set free, where all of the bad and broken things, all the sinful things that pull us down every single day, all the brokenness that we see in the world around us, if the kingdom is going to be the kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom, some things from this world have to be excluded. Some things can't make it in. Some things can't persist if the kingdom is to be the kingdom. Doesn't it make sense that God has to judge and exclude injustice if the kingdom is going to be a place of perfect justice? For there to be justice, there has to be judgment. And what that means is in Jesus' return, it's good news. And it's also bad news. Good news for the oppressed means bad news for the oppressor. Good news for the poor and exploited means bad news for the rich and the exploitative. Good news for the abused physically, emotionally, sexually is bad news for the abusers. So why didn't Jesus just talk about that? Why wasn't he fully honest about that that day in the synagogue? That's an Advent question. His first Advent was about the proclamation of the coming kingdom of God and the offer of forgiveness 
for all those who recognize their need for it. Jesus' first advent was all about inviting people to repent and believe that the kingdom of God was at hand, that it was coming, that it was near, that it was close. And forgiveness was offered for them. He came with good news that forgiveness is available for everyone who recognizes their need. And then he died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. And then he rose from the dead, showing himself victorious over sin and death. Showing that he was not just Jesus of Nazareth. He was Jesus, the anointed one, the the son of God, the Messiah that was promised. And Jesus' second advent will be about bringing the fullness of that good news to life bringing it to reality. Jesus came to announce it, to proclaim it, to invite those who would accept his forgiveness and his reconciliation with God to begin experiencing a foretaste. We talked about this week one. We're in between his first advent and his second. We live in between and we get little tastes all the time of the kingdom breaking in, but it's not here yet. Oh no, it's definitely not here yet but it's coming. And when Jesus returns, it's important that we acknowledge and that we recognize that Jesus's second advent is not just about delivering on his promise of all the goodness of the kingdom. It's also about coming to exclude the things from our world that cannot persist, cannot remain if the kingdom is going to be the kingdom. It cannot be a place of perfect justice and righteousness unless God excludes all of the things that make our world so dark. Hatred and envy and murder, exploitation, abuse, theft, racism, all of those things have to be judged and excluded for the kingdom to be the kingdom. And what makes it so difficult for us to talk about this topic of judgment and why I think we often forget that we just often avoid it or or, or just don't want to talk about it at all is that when we talk about God's coming judgment of sin, this is not an abstract concept. We're actually talking about people that Jesus is coming to judge. This is why it can feel so judgmental when we talk about standards of right and wrong, good and bad, to a world that just believes right and wrong are just relative concepts. You do you. I'm going to do me. This concept of a coming judgment to separate what really truly is good and bad, right and wrong in our world and in our lives can feel burdensome for people. And it's that we're talking about people, the reality of people being excluded from God's kingdom because Jesus makes it clear over and over and over again to his followers that all those through who they're through. for whom through their actions or by their inactions allowed injustice to move forward in the world will one day face judgment. And our only hope, the hope that Jesus offers us is that when he comes, he comes as judge and he also comes as defender. For everyone who recognizes their own complicity in the sin and brokenness of the world, Jesus comes as our defender, the one who died on our behalf to give us forgiveness of sins. But for those who reject his offer of forgiveness, who those who don't even think that they need it, 
who believe that they're righteous on their own, which just means that they're okay because they're just doing themselves. They're just living their own version of truth. There's no place for them in God's coming kingdom, according to Jesus. And this should be a sobering thought. One that we all take to heart. It should also make us very sober, very cautious, very apprehensive about our own practice of judging good and bad, right and wrong, condemning other people. Because sometimes in our own desire for justice, we can rush and quickly make judgments. And in doing so, we often become perpetuators of injustice ourselves. When you read through the accounts of Jesus's life, it becomes really clear that as he talks about this coming judgment one day, that the, that the concept of judgment is not something that we should take lightly and not something that we should enter into unadvisedly. He warns people about the coming judgment of God and he also warns against our judgment of one another. In particular, Jesus was very, very harsh to the religious leaders of his day who were so sure so prideful that they knew exactly what was right and what was wrong, good and bad, and how to judge and how to deliver justice. Matthew and Luke, in their accounts of Jesus's life, both record instances where Jesus warned harshly against judging. You may have even heard this verse before or some version of it. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will also be forgiven. And Jesus goes on to talk about the hypocrisy that often is involved in judgment. And he uses this ridiculous picture of a log and a speck. He says, why do you point out the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Why do you point out this brokenness, this sin, this thing that you're so sure is wrong in his life? When you all the time have a log, asks us to Paint a picture of someone with a log sticking out of their eye and ignoring it to point out a speck in someone else's eye. It's always easier to see sin and brokenness and what right justice looks like in other people's lives. But Jesus was warning us. He was giving us a clear warning that judgment is tricky business. If you don't examine yourself and if you don't consider your own faults and failures before judging the failure of others and deciding what justice looks like, then one day you risk being held accountable. You risk falling into hypocrisy and you risk judging other people unwisely and not delivering justice, but delivering injustice. I was reminded this week just how complex and muddled the process of judging rightly can be When I was reading an article that the New York Times put out um, a week ago, so two weeks ago on Friday, um, it was an article by uh, a guy named Nicholas Kristof. And I'm going to talk about this article and I want to warn parents who are there with young kids right now. I am going to sanitize this as much as possible, but this is a subject that may be difficult for you to talk with, with really young kids. So I'm going to give you a minute. And if you just want to lead them out of the room or pause the stream and come back later for the last song, that would be great because I think this is a topic of conversation. If you have older kids, it's one you need to talk about with them. But if they're younger, this may create conversations that they're not quite ready for. Um, The article that Nicholas Kristof wrote was entitled The Children of Pornhub. I would encourage you to go and read the article 
yourself so you can get the fullness of it because I'm going to sanitize most of what I share about it today. It took me a couple attempts to get through it because it was so brutal and so hard to read. The article focuses on the topic of online pornography sites, in particular, the largest of which, which is called Pornhub, and how they profit from the distribution of videos of sexually explicit videos that feature children, that feature acts of rape and abuse, and videos that are made without consent, either through spy cam videos or videos that were taken of a victim who was actually unconscious. And there's a picture that should be on your screen. It's the cover article, cover picture from the article. And this young girl that was featured in the article is named Serena. She was 14 when a boy in her class texted her and asked for a video of her naked. She was nervous, but she had a crush on him. So she sent him the video. And her life would never be the same. The boy asked for more videos and began to pressure her. And what she didn't know, what she couldn't know, was that he was sharing those with her friends. And she was nervous, but again, flattered that he was asking for these videos of her. So she sent them. And soon people began asking her for more and pressuring her and threatening her that they were going to tell her parents she didn't send more. And eventually someone uploaded Serena's video to a website, to Pornhub. And her whole world imploded and melted down. Eighth grade's hard enough when you don't have to suffer through your classmates laughing at you and looking at videos of you that were made in a way that she didn't think anyone would ever see or know. It's hard enough without being told you're a slut or being shamed every day. Eventually, her, her family was able to bring this to the school's attention when they finally found out about it. The boy was suspended. She changed schools, but eventually the rumors followed her to her other school. The videos were removed, but because videos are easily downloaded, people were just re-uploading them. She could never get away from this. These videos still live on the internet to this day. Her life continued to spiral down, drugs, she attempted suicide multiple times, and at 19, as of the publication of this article, she was living in her car in her hometown. There was actually some good news that came in a follow-up article, some people stepped forward to help her, but the state of where she was was perpetuated by this abuse that she suffered as a child, as a, just a 14-year-old girl. And this article reveals just a small taste. I'm telling you, I sanitized that story more than you could possibly imagine. And when you hear a story like that, everything in you, your blood begins to boil, especially if you're a parent, and you begin to think there needs to be justice. People need to be held accountable for this. And the question is, where do you start? What does justice look like in a situation like this? Do you begin with the company, the conglomerate that owns that website and so many more? It's called MindGeek. It's a private company. Do you hold their owners accountable for the pain and the suffering that were inflicted on Serena and all these other young girls who will never be the same, been robbed of their innocence? 
What about the employees, the people who work every single day to keep this site up and going, the advertisers, the people who pay for everything? It's an easy place to start is to say, well, it's this company that's perpetuating this, right? But what would, even, what would justice even look like? What, what, when you're trying to think about setting things right, how do you possibly, possibly punish someone for the crime of profiting off the exploitation and pain of literally thousands of victims. But the company has repeatedly said, hey, we're just a platform. This is what most tech companies hide behind when, when inappropriate or illegal content shows up on their site. Hey, we're protected because we just provide the platform. It's the users who upload the content. We have people who scan and screen, but they can't get everything Really, it's the users you should be going after. They're the ones who upload the content. Users like the teenage boy who uploaded Serena's content. So what does justice look like for for those perpetrators of injustice? How, How do you punish a kid who's making a stupid decision? Do you ruin the rest of his life? Do you do you punish him? Do you make him a sex offender so that he can never get a job again? because of a decision he made in his teenage years. And then judgment and justice gets really tricky when we move away from the supply side of this and start talking about the demand. The reality is these sites exist because people visit them. A lot of people visit them. Pornhub attracts three and a half billion visits a day, more than Netflix, more than Yahoo, more than Amazon. And those visits generate 3 billion ad impressions a day that pay inordinate sums of money to keep these companies continuing to provide and make this content available. Serena said that one of the videos of her at 14 had over 400,000 views when she had it taken down, when she requested to have it taken down. The demand for pornographic content, even exploitative or illegal content, is what drives this industry forward. Statistics tell us that 40 million Americans regularly visit pornography sites. And every second, over 28,000 people are watching pornography online. And this, by the way, is not a problem that's out there. A recent study showed that 64% of Christian men who were surveyed said they regularly watch pornography. 15% of Christian women. I am 100% confident that someone watching today recently viewed pornography online, maybe even on Pornhub. And if you're a parent, there's a good chance that your kids may already be consumers. Stats show that 93% of boys and 62% of girls have viewed pornography before they turn 18 years old. A friend of mine actually reached out to me this week and said, I'd worked with him to get a filter put on his house at home to, to block content so his kids couldn't find this stuff. And he said, we were at my parents' house over Thanksgiving and my 10-year-old son went to a website and was watching pornography. He's 10. His son is 10 years old. So how do we judge the consumer's responsibility in all of this? How, How do we judge their responsibility in the pain and suffering inflicted on women like Serena? What does it justice look like when we begin to think about that? And how do you judge? When you really begin to look into the darkness of our world, you begin to realize the truth of what 
author Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, he survived the gulag and he wrote about his experience of being in a Soviet prison camp. And he said, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Who can judge? Who, who can decide and cleave through the darkness that is mixed with goodness every single day in our lives? Who can judge the brokenness of our world? Only God. Only God. Perfect justice requires perfect judgment and only God ultimately can do that. And Advent reminds us that one day he will. Until then, we live in between. We live as people yearning and longing for the brokenness of our world to be undone, for the the injustice that we see to be excluded from our everyday experience. We pray for wisdom to judge rightly between good and bad, right and wrong. And we enter cautiously and advisedly into those situations where we have to judge and we have to try and figure out what does justice look like. And yet in the midst of that, we can still advocate for victims. We can still work for justice, even if imperfectly waiting and longing for God's justice, his ultimate justice, which is yet to come, doesn't have to mean that we wait passively or do nothing. But let us do so in fear and with great humility. And let us always remember that our judgment and our justice is imperfect. So as we close today, let's pray for God's mercy, for God's mercy for all of us and for God's wisdom that as we pray and we long and we look forward to the day when his perfect judgment comes and his justice is done on earth as it is in heaven, we long and we pray for that perfect day and we pray for his wisdom to be people who are people who recognize the need for judgment but also recognize the need for mercy. That we would be a people of hope who proclaim the good news that Jesus is both our judge and our defender. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. And Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. God, it is a um, terrifying and sobering um, experience to look into the heart of the darkness of our world and to realize that we are looking back at ourselves. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we have, um, through what we have done or what we have left undone, the ways we have contributed to the injustice in this world. God, make us people who long for justice, but also people who recognize our need for mercy. Help us to be people of grace in our everyday lives, who advocate for victims, who advocate for justice, and who recognize even in Every situation, the victims and the victimizers are often confusing to discern one from the other. So give us wisdom, God. Give us grace and help us to be your people, your light in a dark world.
And we pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.